Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning, everyone. How we doing? Good. Anybody done with their leaves yet? Anyone? No? It's just a never-ending pile of leaves. It's fine. I love just blowing the same pile into the yard, and then it just adds more and more and more. Okay, that was, that was it. I had to get that off my chest. We're good now. I had to share it with someone. I didn't have therapy this week, so I had to tell someone. Well, hey, we are in the book of John. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn there. Uh, John 4, continuing our series through the Gospel of John, going through most of the scripture and and uniquely pieces that are in John that are not in any of the other gospel accounts. And so this is, uh, I believe, week six. And so the first two weeks start off with the intro. John gives us an understanding of Jesus not only being God, but also flesh, becoming human and dwelling among us. And uh, in that same way, he then brings that into Jesus uh, being human and and living life, uh, calling some of his disciples, and navigating through uh, his kingdom being ushered in through the people in John that we see. So the first thing that he talks about and does is this miraculous sign in a wedding where he turns water into wine as a revealing of just the new wine of the good news of Jesus, replacing the old wine of the legalism and the laws and Judaism and the the burden that had been put on them. Uh, And then after that, he has a really great conversation uh, with a guy named Nicodemus, who's a chief uh, chief Pharisee religious leader who is curious about what all this means. And so uh, Nicodemus is like the intellectual seeker, and Jesus tries to help him understand the spiritual realm in regards to the physical realm, and and it's kind of a clunky conversation, but uh, that's where we get the most famous passage probably in the Bible, that God so loved the world he gave his only son for us, and uh, gives that to Nicodemus. And then now this next week today, we're moving on from that conversation into a new story with a Samaritan woman. And what's unique about the beginning of this chapter that, uh, that Brennan read was uh, that he, he, Jesus constantly, it, it's pretty subtle, but you'll see it throughout the Gospels that whenever he starts to uh, grow in fame and popularity, he actually runs away. Uh, not, in a, not in a bad way, like he's scared, but he's trying to be really intentional with the height of his ministry and who he's able to minister to. And obviously, he kind of hits this arc, whereas he's gaining more and more followers. He feeds 5,000, he feeds 4,000. And then as he starts to come into Jerusalem for his last week that we call Holy Week, um, he's at the point where he's really famous but also very much hated. And so the Pharisees are kind of on his tail. Uh, They're like the private investigators trying to figure out, uh, is this guy really who he says he is? If he is what he's claiming to be, then we have rights to kill him. And so they're constantly hearing things and trying to figure out what is Jesus actually saying. And that's why in verse 1, when Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was basically growing in fame, uh, that, they, that Jesus is like, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and so Jesus had had this conversation with Nicodemus, and then they went out into uh, the Judean wilderness, and they started baptizing people, and that's where we had the conversation last week um, about the disciples and, and, and just John the Baptist's um, awesome ability to finish well. And by finish well, killed, uh, but knowing that Jesus' ministry must increase and that he must decrease. And so that brings us today 
where we have a story of a Samaritan woman. Now, if you uh, have known anything about Samarit, uh, Samarit, Samaria or Samaritans, you maybe know the, the, the nonprofit, uh, the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, or, or, uh, and that, that idea is based on the story that we know of the parable of the Good Samaritan who walks through this journey, uh, a, a guy gets mugged, right? And everybody passes him by to help him, the priest, the Levite, all these religious leaders, but the person who stops is a Samaritan who Jewish people would have been like, ugh, I can't believe a Samaritan helped him. And so the, Samar- the Samaritan idea for us, we, we've read about tension between them, if, if you've read that story or other stories um, but there's a large history between uh, Judea and Samaria, and I want to give it to you because it's going to help you really understand the weight of this entire story that we read. It's not just a woman at a well, it's a Samaritan woman at a well. So a long time ago in the uh, Old Testament in Genesis, Jacob, or also known as Israel, it's his name, had 12 sons whose descendants became the 12 tribes. We know mainly Joseph, who was his favorite. Joseph has this really great story. Uh, Joseph had a, a beautiful cloak or coat, and his brothers were jealous. They tried to kill him. They decided to sell him to slavery, even better. And G- Joseph ends up redeeming all of them when he becomes, becomes powerful with Pharaoh. And uh, yeah, and so J- Jacob blesses Joseph. Uh, and in Genesis 49, he gives them basically this well of blessing. And in that, then, uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he, he basically allocates his land into two sections. And, uh, and then it's later divided into two kingdoms. And so this is where this gets important. There was the northern kingdom uh, of Israel where the capital is in Shechem. And, uh, and then later they moved to a hilltop city of Samaria. Now, what you have is the Israelite people being fractioned into two different kingdoms. Okay, And then what happens is during exile, which is another part of the Old Testament, uh, they both get conquered. So... In 722 BC, Assyria conquers Samaria, which is the northern region, and take most of their people into captivity. And then later, the Jews are uh, conquered by Babylon, and then they're also taken into captivity. So what you have is two different time periods where, where both, basically, of Israel is taken. The difference is that when the Samaritans were taken, the Assyrians basically infiltrated the region of Samaria with a lot of different uh, beliefs and people in their their beliefs. And so what happens is, as they introduce some of the um, Israelites back into Samaria, it becomes this hodgepodge of different beliefs. And so what happens is they take Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they blend him in with all these other practices and gods, and it creates this really weird uh, melting pot. However, longer enough uh, goes by where they start to drop all the other gods and they follow Yahweh uh, alone. The problem is, is that they, from that, inherited some really peculiar beliefs that caused them to be different. Uh, and the best way I could describe this today in modern day is, uh, and I have to be careful about what I would say, but it would be basically being like maybe a Seventh-day Adventist or maybe even a Mormon, where you have this sort of backing belief foundationally, but then you have these different uh, turns in your belief that some would say are gospel importance and some would say are not, right? Depending on what denomination or where you're, what you're... Uh, believing in, and so they have this sort of peculiar Yahweh worship religion, but they would never come down to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. They would actually have their their own temple. And so this caused a lot of tension. To add on to that, when the Jewish people returned from exile in Babylon, the Samaritans offered to help rebuild their temple, and the Jews declined. They didn't want the Samaritans to have anything to do with the building of their temple uh, because of their, you know, 
they weren't purebred and they had all these bad uh, beliefs and things like that. And so this, this kind of builds this tension uh, to where Samaritans built their own temple and uh, it was eventually burned by the Jews about 150 years before this story we're reading. So as you can imagine, it's been this constant battle, both of which worship Yahweh, uh, but the Jews having this sort of right belief, the Sumerians having this sort of hodgepodge, kind of missing certain beliefs. The main difference, if you care, is that uh, the, Sumer- the Sumerians, Samaritans didn't basically believe in three-fourths of the Old Testament. They only believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, whereas the Jewish people have been steeped in the rest, like the, uh, the prophets and the judges and uh, the Psalms and things like that, where they had been steeped in that. So their understanding of who the Messiah was to be looked a lot different than the Sumer- uh, Sumerians' understanding of who the Messiah was looking to be. But they both knew there's going to be this one to come that will save us and set us free. So that's the tension. However, the tension is so bad that uh, they wouldn't even talk or even walk through if they had to the land that each, either of them owned. This is a map of if you were going to take a trip up to Galilee, uh, you would typically go on the dotted line. You would literally take the long way up the river of Jordan to not have to step foot in Samaria. And so as we know, we've talked a lot about Jesus' ministry up in the region of Galilee, which is up north near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus born in Bethlehem and then raised in Nazareth up there. And so you know, there was lots of Jews making that trek all the time. They had to make it for all the festivals. They, you know, they would do it for lots of different reasons. And it was, it was Jewish all throughout that. But Samaria was this weird sliver in between. Like I said, that was a northern kingdom. And unless you, were, you had a really, really specific reason to make the quicker route through Samaria, you wouldn't do it. It was also hillier, so there was a little more hiking involved. Uh, she had, you, know, you had to make sure you had your, uh, your North Face boots. But for the most part, you wouldn't do it. You would just take the long way because you didn't want to deal with or be in around Samaritans. Samaritans, I think, also felt the same way then. If somebody hates being around you, it's hard for you to love being around them. And so there was this massive tension. So what does Jesus do? He's baptizing people uh, in probably in the area near uh, Ephraim in the hillside. We talked about this last week. And, and they're baptizing people, and he's growing in fame, and so he realizes the Pharisees are probably going to come check him out. And so he wants to go back up to, to the homeland of Galilee, and he's like, you know, let's just go through Samaria, right? I'm sure the disciples were like, that is not the way we're going to go. But if you sign up to follow our rabbi, you sign up to follow in his physical and metaphorical footsteps. And so they followed him into Samaria, where they stop at uh, this town or near this town named Sychar, which is also known as Jacob's Well. And, uh, and this is where we get this beautiful story of the Samaritan woman. So in verse 7, or sorry, verse, uh, verse 4, they had, they had to pass through Samaria. Even, even John's like, this was not good. Uh, and he came to a Samaritan town named Sychar near Plotoland that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, which I gave you the history of. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, being tired from his journey, sat right down beside the well, and it was about noon. Now, midday, a well is pretty uh, empty. There's not a lot of people there because they're off tending to things or working, and so the well was busiest in the morning and in the evening. It's kind of like, nowadays, not so much, but kind of like a gas station's busier before rush hour and after rush hour, right, than it would be maybe in the middle of the day. Uh, But there's really no one there. Jesus stops there, and in verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. And then John gives us the, uh, the idea that he's alone. For the disciples had gone off into town to buy supplies. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? 
for Jews to use nothing in common with Samaritans. Now, if you're a religious leader at this point and you're listening to this story, this is three strikes, right? This is not only a woman, this is a Samaritan woman, and this is, uh, we'll learn later, a, a Samaritan woman who is a sexual sinner, basically. So this is like the ultimate three bad things. And so as a Pharisee or religious leader, you want nothing to do with this girl. You, want, you don't want to be around her. Uh, you don't want to talk to her. You don't even want to give her your eyes. Okay, so this whole story is incredibly provocative for listeners because Jesus is, is really entering into a very wild situation. Um, there's not really a good way to, to, to modern contextualize this. I mean, this would be like if there was, uh, you know, this is like Jesus basically going into a strip club or beside a strip club and hanging out with women there. And, and you're just, even by the sheer fact that he's there, is just alarming to you. You're like, this guy is clearly trying to be provocative. So the fact that he's sitting down at a well is not that big of a deal, but the fact that a Samaritan woman comes with all this sin and he stays there and he talks to her is just baffling. And so he says to her, and I love this, he's like, can you get me a drink? And we, we, we don't think a lot by that. Okay, like Jesus is thirsty. They've been walking a long way. They're in the desert. You know, this, is, this is, makes sense. But as a Jew, you would never ask a Samaritan for anything like that because of cleanliness laws, and uh, if you become unclean, it's a whole process to become clean again. And so he asked her, hey, give me some water, which would have, again, been another crazy provocative thing. And that's why she's like, are you sure that you want water from me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. This is not how this works. Uh, but Jesus is like, hey, give me some water, which is interesting to me that uh, we're going to talk about this as, as sort of a gospel conversation that Jesus has with this woman. It's interesting to me that it starts off with him asking something of her. Which is really unique to me. I think when we think about evangelism, we think like, let's, let's serve people. And then when they feel like, man, they feel love, then we share the gospel with them. Jesus does the opposite. He's like, can you serve me? And now I'm going to share with you the good news. Uh, so it's a pretty, pretty spicy take on how we typically do evangelism. Uh, but there's something here about Jesus acknowledging her as another human. right? Like you are a human being. And even though you have a lot of reason for me to not associate with you, I love you and I care for you and I would love for you to serve me. And so he basically gives her a dignity as a human, asking her to get him a drink. The woman says to him in verse 11, or sorry, in verse 10, he says, if, uh, sorry, I'm too far here. Uh, she says, how can you, obviously a Jew, ask me for a drink? He says to her, if you had known the gift of God and who it was who said to you, give me some water to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, water here is important. I've I've talked a lot about symbolisms in John and and drawing a lot on the Old Testament understanding. And water in the Old Testament is really everywhere, and there's a lot of different meanings I've talked about in baptism, how it can imply a negative thing of being um, enslaved or um, pressured down underwater. But in baptism, we know you're raised to life, and there's a positive. There's also a lot of positive terms of water, or living water is probably more specifically used in this instance. And so what what Jesus is talking about, the gift of God, is he's actually talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the new life that you get and the cleansing and the purification that you get from the Spirit, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But he he basically says, if only you'd known who you're talking to, uh, I wouldn't be the one asking you for water. You'd be asking me. And then she responds in kind of a funny way. Uh, this is like just like Nicodemus. Jesus says this sort of high, lofty, abstract, spiritual concept, and then you're only thinking in a physical realm, and so you're like, this doesn't make any sense. This is exactly what happens with her. She replies, uh, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you think you're going to get that living water? You know, Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, who built the well, are you? 
He gave us the well. He drank from it along with his sons and livestock. She's like immediately just like practical. Uh, this well's like 100 feet deep, bro, and you don't have a bucket. So are you just going to like climb down there and get some water? It's not going to happen. So once again, we see the default of, of a human's ability to understand and hear Jesus. The, the difficult point is transcending from the physical into the spiritual. And I think that's probably true with a lot of us, right? Like if we have people who are struggling and are trying to comprehend Jesus or God in general, the biggest barrier a lot of times for entry is this idea of a spiritual realm and what that is. And a lot of times we conflict it with modern science and how, you know, people would say, well, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, which is just funny. Uh, but uh, that's from Nacho Libre, by the way, if you're wondering. Uh, and, uh, but it, it's, it's hard to reconcile, right? And you say, well, I can only believe what I can see. And there's this conversation about the spiritual realm and does it have power and what is it and what does it look like and what does the Bible have to say about it? What does Jesus have to say about it? And so most of the people that he's encountering are no different than people today. It's people here, here's what I see, here's my view of the world, and here's what you're saying, and I don't really understand how that reconciles. And so she's like, you don't have a bucket, man. You can't do it. <laughs> just like Nicodemus said, you can't be born out of a woman again when you're old. It just doesn't work, okay? I know 100% of the time it has not happened. So what you're saying is not real. And so what, you know, what she's basically saying, and she's, def she's deflecting to, to her ancestors, being like, you're not greater than Jacob who built this well, are you? Is she's basically just saying, you know, my own story, my own view of life is good enough. Yours doesn't make any sense. I can easily rebut it. Uh, you, don't have a, you don't have a bucket, so like, I win here, okay? This is like, I'm, I'm right and you're crazy. And, you know, that, that to us is so, you know, I think we resonate with that strongly about trying to have this gospel conversation with people. And so Jesus replies to her. He says, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. And so he does. He acknowledges the physical reality of thirst and of our dimension of, of the physical reality. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. So you see how he does the same thing he did with Nicodemus. He kind of starts to bring him over into the spiritual realm. He starts to have these, he changes the language and verbiage and tries to have this conversation to, to shepherd them into the spiritual realm. In the same way, he's like, look, uh, you're right in that there's, yeah, this, this water for sure, but it, you're also going to be thirsty again in a few hours. But the water that I can give you in the spiritual realm, right, is this everlasting water. The verbiage here is incredibly strong. Uh, when it uses the word springing up, it can mean leaping or welling up. It's the same language that's used in Acts 3.8 when a lame man walks for the first time. He starts jumping and leaping, like with just complete joy and freedom. And so Jesus is saying that, you know, it's not just a static content thing. It's an abundance, a leaping out of our lives. We take a pause there and just reflect. Does our relationship with Jesus feel like a welling spring that is just leaping with freedom and joy and and goodness. Because that's what Jesus promises. And if everybody's just walking around all mopey, right, and everyone's walking around like, Jesus isn't really doing anything in my life, and then, then why, why don't we trust this? And that's what he, he's getting at, this beautiful idea of water here is just going to quench a, a short-term thirst. But I have something that will be much deeper. So if we, if we pause here, I want to give this outline because, like I said, I think a lot of, we can learn a lot from this story, not only from what Jesus is doing with the Samaritan woman in the culture, but also just evangelism. How do we have spiritual conversations with people? So this is the outline, if you were just to be simple about it. 
of this conversation so far, uh, verses 3 through 6, Jesus intentionally places himself in a mission field. Meaning he, he's like, we're going to go through Samaria. And they're like, are you sure that doesn't seem like the right route? He's like, we're going to go through Samaria, right? I want to have a conversation with a woman. So they go to Samaria. Uh, then he requests help from a very broken Samaritan woman. He asks something of the broken person. Then in verse 9, the Samaritan woman deflects his asking, <laughs> which is, right, par for the course. Uh, they're like, nope, my way is fine. Your way is weird. I don't trust it. I don't like it. I will uh, deflect and then in verse 10, Jesus deepens the pursuit of his good news. He tries to bring her into the spiritual understanding of what he can do for her. Verse 11 and 12, she's uh, still not really interested and is kind of you know, rebutting some of the things that he's saying. Uh, and then verse 6 is Jesus shares the basis of the good news of, hey, I have eternal uh, life in the water that I have, and it, you can have it. And it will flow up, and it will spring, and it will be far more abundant and greater than anything you can pull out of this well ever. And he gives her this, and how does the woman respond to this? And this is like, this is, like I said, this is par for the course if you've ever had spiritual conversations like this, and they've kind of gone in this trajectory. Uh, the woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. If you're wondering, her response is basically focused on her own personal convenience. That sounds pretty good. I'll take it. I don't want to go to this well anymore. Like, I would love that. If I could just have an unlimited spring of water in my house, then I would never have to walk anywhere. I'd never have to do anything. It's the American dream, right? Like, let's just, let's just automate everything. Have you ever seen Wally? You ever see Wally? That's what happens when you automate everything. You're like this fat person in a chair that's going around and you don't have, like, you don't have muscles anymore. It's a great movie if you haven't seen it. But, uh, but it's, it's the American idea of like, oh man, like Jesus will help me in my personal convenience. The tangible things in the world that I have to deal with, Jesus will like make those easy or non-existent, which is honestly a great selling point uh, if you're curious about your life being better because you're like, well, this guy can help me do these things. And I mean, let's be honest, like I, I think we've all felt a level of this at some point. Uh, whether you, you, know, you believe Jesus will heal you of your physical ailment or whatever, you know, your condition or something, you're like, I just want physical reprieve from this thing, and Jesus will do it. And he does do it in, the, in a lot of the gospel stories. And he'll heal me from that. Or he'll fix your anxiety, or he'll bless you with financial success, or give you friends, or maybe even a spouse. I'm sure no one has started to follow Jesus because of a romantic relationship. But all of these things are still deeply rooted in a sense of self, a sense of personal convenience, a sense of, of eliminating suffering, thinking that suffering itself is, is um, not required for the gospel. And so she's like, yeah, I would love that. My life is tough right now. Give me that thing so that I can have it, so I don't have to come here anymore. And basically, uh, she's like, I don't, I don't want to make this chore anymore. I don't want to be around. Notice how she's coming in the middle of the day, which if you're coming in the middle of the day, it would show that you're probably a social outcast or you don't have a lot of friends or there's something wrong with you, which Jesus will talk about in a moment. But she's like, I don't want to come here anymore in the middle of the day. That'd be great. I don't want to do this. And Jesus is like, hey, I have this living water. And she's like, give me that. I would love that. That would be great. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves, right, was there moments in our conversion story where we, we genuinely, and, and not even maybe maliciously, but like laced Jesus into our own personal agenda? We're like, man, it'd be a lot easier if I didn't have to be anxious. It'd be a lot better if I had a little bit more money. And I, I hear this Jesus guy sometimes hands out freebies, you know? Like, I would be interested in that. Or, man, my relationship's not going well. 
and there's sort of this ultimatum, and I just need to follow Jesus, and then everything will be good, right? And then I'll be the man or the woman that they want me to be, and everything will be good. You can name it. There's all these personal conveniences that we, we kind of sneak into following Jesus. And I would argue that most of us have some of those to some extent of why we follow Jesus. But as we follow Jesus, you start to realize these things. God starts to do a work in these things. And your, your following should be more and more selfless in why you're doing it and what you're, what you're hoping of it. And it's, it's this deepening in maturity. And obviously this woman's not really understanding where he's going with this. And he'll talk about what this means. But uh, his next, his next uh, comment of her personal convenience is a very stark uh, contrast of how we would probably handle this conversation with someone. So I'm not actually recommending you do this, but he says to her, hey, go call your husband and come back here. And the woman replies, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, right, you, you don't. You've had five, and now you have none. And the guy that you're living with isn't even your husband, right? I wouldn't try that if I was you. But you can try it and let me know how it goes. But I wouldn't try that. Um, this is the part where Jesus is Jesus, right? We all want to be like Jesus, but Jesus is also Jesus. So like, he clearly knew this. He didn't have some background information because uh, he's God. And so he's like, yeah, you've had five husbands, and you're here, and you're, you know. And like I said, Pharisees would be like, man, she's sexual sinner, hardcore. And Jesus is associating with her. And so he stops the, the conversation at personal convenience and he starts to basically, what he's going to do is he's going to show her the futility of that personal convenience through the wound in her heart. That's what he's doing. And so uh, John Piper is famous for quoting this, but he says, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. And that is just true of humanity, if you're, if you're wondering. Wounds are sensitive. You're terrified of people touching your wounds. Uh, you know, if I go to the doctor, I remember when I was little, and I had like a... Um, an abscess in my, my finger, and they had to like put shots in it, and I was like, I would rather my finger fall off than go to this doctor and do this thing, right? It's terrifying. I, I, it's tender and delicate, and it's scary. And now the scarier part is the fact that if I wouldn't have done anything, my thing, I wouldn't have a thumb right now, right? So obviously you got to weigh the pros and cons, but either are going to cause suffering. What kind of suffering do you want to endure, right? And in this woman's... Um, moment, she's hoping for personal convenience at a shallow level. Man, it'd be great if I didn't have to make this trip anymore and I just had water all the time. And Jesus is like, yeah, that would be great, but what about your sexual sin? <laughs> and he draws straight into her heart through her woundedness. Now, you know, you can speculate why she's had five husbands. In this culture, and especially in Samaria, it was common that you, as a man, you could divorce your wife for pretty much any reason, depending on which rabbi you followed. Um, but five husbands is a lot of husbands. And so, you know, you might... You could get divorced for burning the soup, um, but you know five times either you're really bad at making soup or there's some sort of personal problem that either you're promiscuous or you're really disobedient or whatever. I don't know what it would be that she was divorced five times, but we, all we know is she's pretty much given on the idea of marriage because she's living with a guy now and not even married. And Jesus knows that, and he, he draws her straight to that, no frills. And at this point now, the woman's like, oh, Okay, this isn't just a convenient water thing. You just like said the deepest, you know, sin and the things I'm probably most shamed and embarrassed about, which is why I'm at this well by myself, and you just happen to be here, which is bothering me that you're here. And he just calls her straight into it. Uh, I love the book by Henry Nowen called Wounded Healer, and his whole premise is that Jesus is God's wounded healer, and that through his wounds he heals us. And today, as we as we kind of shift gears in this passage. I want us to think about the idea of using our woundedness for healing for others. And so Jesus calls out her wounds, 
And, uh, and she says to him, and she immediately just shifts gears. She's like, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Basically, she's like, well, I don't know how you know that, so you must know I see you're a prophet. It's like she immediately just got stopped and was like, okay, well, you clearly know something, so you must be a prophet. Now, Sumerians didn't really believe in prophets, uh, and so her saying this is, she's like, I got no idea how to explain this. How does this guy know my marital history? And is she's being pinned, basically, in a corner, and she's trying to fight back because Jesus is about to go, go into her wound, right? And she's like, I don't want to talk about it. I see you know things. And then she deflects by saying, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Do you notice the shift here? She's like, I'm just going to deflect. We're not even going to talk about it. You, you know things good for you. But also, have you heard about like, how it's weird that we worship on this mountain in Jerusalem? They, like, they're over here. It's really weird. What do you think about that? That's like if somebody's like, trying to really like, pull something out of you, and you're like, so tell me who you voted for last week. Like, isn't that crazy? Everybody's just like doing all these crazy things. She's totally deflecting. She's squirming, right? And we all have seen this. We've tried to have conversations with people, and they just, are, they just don't want to talk about the wound, right? They want to talk about anything else. What about God says this? What about that? What about, you know, it's not about that. It's about this. And she tries to deflect, and of course Jesus actually entertains her for a second. And he says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he's like, yeah, you know, you're right, but it's not, it doesn't really matter. Let's just, let's just, here you go. Here's the answer. It doesn't matter. You people worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. Now, this is Jesus actually being like, Jews are right and you're wrong. So that's a little bit bold. But he says, there's a time coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. Really what he's saying is he's kind of answering a question, but he's going to bring it back around. And he says, look, you guys were kind of worshiping God, but wow, you were way off. And then the Jews, we kind of kept to what we were supposed to do. And, and I'd say we're more right, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because everyone is going to have the moment, and it's here now, to worship God wherever they are. And when he says spirit and truth, spirit is not Holy Spirit necessarily. It's more like your deepest heart inclination and desire. It's kind of like soul, like your soul worship. And so we know that you can stand here in the chairs and you can sing songs, but if your soul can still be very void of what you're saying and singing. In the same way that he's saying God wants more than anything a whole soul to worship him, regardless of where you are. Location is not the importance. It is the heart. And then the truth is just the idea of the truth of who God is, like learning and knowing the truth and that being a part of how you're worshiping. And so he doubles down by saying in 24, God is spirit. The people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's saying, look, who cares about the mountains? If your heart is there and your soul is there and you're engaging with the Lord in spirit and in truth, the Lord loves that worship because he is spirit. He has this understanding of full heart affection towards something, which is is people. And so the woman then says, she's like, okay, okay, you kind of answered that one. Then he says, well, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. And wherever he comes, he will tell us everything. Uh, which is another deflection. Okay, you answered that one pretty well, but I have another one that you can't answer, and that's we, the Messiah is coming. We don't know when, but like once, once he comes, then, then we'll figure all this out. And so what she's doing is she's deflecting with time. She's like, hey, let's just, let's just curb this conversation right now because, um, you know, let's just wait it out, and we'll, we'll know for sure when the Messiah comes, which is, like I said, a belief that they had. They had a very construed belief because they didn't have all of the Old Testament, but they knew Messiah was to come. 
she's like, we'll just wait it out. How often have you or you, you know, you've talked to someone who's like, you know what, that's just like, I'm just, I'm fine right now. Talk to me in a couple years, you know, or like, you know what, I just need to see more things and we'll just wait or go get a professional or right, all these like deflections of time, right? In that moment, we want to do anything other than talk about our woundedness. And she's like, you know what, we'll just wait. He'll tell us everything. And then Jesus responds uh, the first time in John. He says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, he hasn't told really anyone else that he's the Messiah, he's the sent one. The Greek here is really cool because it doesn't have the word he, uh, and so we obviously translate it to, to make sense in English, but really the best way to describe it is he says, I that speak to you, I am, which I am has a very spiritual uh, symbolic power in John and in the Bible of God saying, I am. That's what God said when he, when he told what to tell Pharaoh, I am, right? And Jesus says, I am. And so essentially Jesus has put the kibosh on any deflection now, and he's like, I am exactly what you need right in this moment. And he's just like, no more, no more squirming. I took my whole trip just to meet you here, and I've gotten through all your baggage and your deflections, and I am the Messiah, and I can give you living water. No more excuses, no more, no more like distractions, right? Here's the truth. And this is actually, what's weird is this is how the story ends. It doesn't end with, like, in that moment where she's like, okay, great. She then stops talking, and then all of a sudden the disciples interrupt, which is kind of the weirdest moment. I, I feel like it seems not purposeful, but it is. It says in verse 31, um, or sorry, verse 27, at, at that very moment, his disciples came back, and they were shocked because he was speaking with a woman. However, no one said what do you want or why are you speaking to her? Obviously, they're like, this Samaritan, why is Jesus talking to this woman? Then the woman left her water jar, went out into town, and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? And so they left town, and they began coming to him. Now, it's, it's funny to me how, you know, John just stops. He says, I am he, and then there's like this distraction. And it's funny to me how she doesn't have a response with words. Like, she's not like, oh, really? Or, wow, that's amazing. Or, right? But she kind of puts all the pieces together. And her response is not necessarily a response to Jesus. It's, it's an action. It's like, wow. This, you know, Jesus, if, I, if she believes this, has met me in my woundedness. And now I'm going to go tell others. Literally in the same, like, hour, right? It's, Jesus has met me in my woundedness. I want to go tell the world. And so she runs back into town, and she, you know, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. He can't be the Messiah, can he? And she's kind of asking this, like, provocative question. And I just think about, like, the beauty of people who, who really get it and who really decide, man, this is, Jesus' love is real. The gospel is real to me, and I believe it. And there's just this, this overwhelming spring that we see with people. Uh, there's a statistic in Barna that talks about how the people who are most effective in reaching other people of Jesus are people who have believed in Jesus within the first two years of their faith journey. So, like, if you just accepted Jesus today, your next two years are your best witnessing years, I guess you could say. And the reason for that, there's a lot of different reasons, um, but one of them is, is invariably, this is so, like, I, I'm, I get it. it, it's clicking, my life I'm understanding what freedom looks like. I'm understanding my personal convenience is, is really has nothing to do with any of this, right? And the true heart of the gospel causes me to just be so passionate and excited. Some of us more seasoned Christians would say, oh, that's just a Jesus high, right? Like you're just, you just came back from camp and you want to like, 
you know, back in, back in the early 2000s, it was like, go burn all your like, secular music, the CDs, right, and stop watching TV. Now I don't know what the response is. But you go back and you're on fire and everyone's like, whoa, chill out, man. You're like sharing the gospel with everyone. But this is exactly what happens, right? This deep wellspring that is flowing up over causes it to flow into other people's lives. And that's exactly what we see with the good news here that Jesus shows us. And then now there's a lot, the last few verses of this passage that I want to just talk about quickly because it's all related to one another. And so as she leaves and she runs and she's telling the whole town and you know, they can't believe it, he, uh, meanwhile the disciples are urging him, Rabbi, you need to eat something. You know, the whole point of he was tired and he was hungry. He sits at the well to relax. They go in and get food for him. And they're like, all right, we brought food. Rabbi, eat something. And he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about, <laughs> which is just so ambiguous, Jesus. Come on. Like, why got to be like that? And the disciples begin to say, well, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? You know, they're like, did you give him food? Did you give him, you know, it's, they're like, our whole job was to go in this dumb city that we didn't want to go into to get food. And he already has food. Like, why did he not tell us that? And uh, he says to them, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. They're probably like, okay, he doesn't have any food. But they're also like, wait, what does this mean? What does this mean? Why, why is he doing this, you know? And, uh, you know, Jesus is, is showing us the beauty of, of the physical reality being, being put on hold for the spiritual necessity of people's lives. How often have you had meaningful, intentional, I think spirit-given and led conversation when you were in a hurry to do something else? More so when you were in a hurry to eat. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe you've like had dinner somewhere and the server, you know, you're like, you know, I just want to pray for him, Right. And you're like, hey, guys, we're going to ask the server if we can pray for them. And they're like, no, we're not because we want to eat, right? And there's just like this urgency or this, you know, oh, you don't want to rock the boat or you don't want to be uncomfortable. And, and the whole point of, of what they were going to do was to get food for Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm actually all right because what I'm doing right now is more important. And he shows the urgency of the gospel. And he, he uses this illustration. He says, don't, don't, um, don't you all say there are four more months and then comes the harvest I tell you, look up and see the fields that are already white for harvest. The one who reaps receives pay and gathers fruit for eternal life, and so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. For in this instance, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not work for. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, some... Scholars say that when Jesus says, like, look at the fields, he's actually not pointing to a field. He's pointing to the, you know, the, the town or the village and saying, look at all these people who are ripe to be harvested for the gospel, right? It's not, you know, we don't know for sure. It could just be literal fields that are ready in Samaria. Uh, but it's in mountains where they're at, so it's, it's maybe not as likely. But he's saying, look, the time is here, the time is now. And he's drawing him into John the Baptist. Look, John the Baptist's time is over, and they sowed seeds. They tilled the soil so that when you came uh, and, you, and you nourish it, and it would, it would grow, and you'd be able to reap it. They tilled the hard soil. And sometimes that's your rule. Sometimes your rule is just tilling hard soil. It's not seeing anything grow. It's not even, not even knowing if there's seeds in there or not. But you're like, I'm just going to do the hard work of tilling the soil. That is the worst, you know, hardest part. I just spent yesterday just scraping up tile in my basement so that you can put down new flooring. And some, some, and some of me was like, why did I not just put this on top of the, old, the three layers of old flooring? But there's something just like just beautiful knowing, like, man, we're down to the bare bottom here, and this work needed to be done. 
it's not beautiful. It is in no way, I mean, I had an air mask on the whole time, right? And it's like, it's just dirty and it's messy and there's no praise in it. But whoever lays the new flooring and everyone gets to see it, like I was a part of that, that work. And so some of you are just tilling soil. Some of you are getting to reap. Some of you are getting conversations from people that have had lots of conversations and you're like, man, I'm actually getting to reap this if I'm present and I'm intentional. And Jesus is saying, like, this is our ministry now. It's people, it's taking diversions of our normal path to be with people, to share the gospel, and to see fruit come of it. Now, when he says this, John closes out the story in verse 39, saying, Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the report of a woman, a sexual sinner woman with five marriages and a new guy on the way. He says, Everyone believed because of that. That just shows you the power of even the most insignificant, wounded, culturally low person causing this massive gospel movement. And so what do they do? You know, she says, he told me everything I ever did. He knew me. He knew my woundedness. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they begged him to stay. And Jesus, we, we forget this. He stays there two full days in this, this town, in Samaria, which I'm sure the disciples loved. And there, he's just ministering to all these lost, broken people. He stayed there two days, and because of his word, many more believed. They said to the woman, no longer do we believe because of your words, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one really is the Savior of the world. And that is, that's, that's the good news story, right? Like We share the good news, and, and we, we pray and we hope that these people actually have a real encounter with Jesus. Our words are great. Our lifestyle proves it, but it's still, it falls short, right? They need to have an experience with Jesus in such a way that they can trust and believe in his words, and it causes this massive gospel movement. And in the least likely of places in Samaria where the, the Jewish people hated it. So I want to close with this story. Uh, I'll invite up Nadia here as we wrap up. And uh, I love this story that Henry Nowen tells in the book, and I think this is going to be helpful for us to navigate this story. He says, One day a young fugitive trying to hide himself from the enemy entered a small village. The people were kind to him and offered him a place to stay, but when the soldiers who sought the fugitive asked where he was hiding, everyone became fearful. The soldiers threatened to burn the village and kill every man in it unless the young man was handed over to them before dawn. The people went to the minister and asked him what to do, and the minister, torn between handing over the boy to the enemy or having his people killed, withdrew to his room and read his Bible, hoping to find an answer before dawn. After many hours in the early morning, his eyes fell on these words, It is better that one man dies uh, than that the whole people be lost. Then the minister closed the Bible, called the soldiers, and told them where the boy was hidden. And after the soldiers led the fugitive away to be killed, there was a feast in the village because the minister had saved the lives of the people, but the minister did not celebrate. Overcome with a deep sadness, he remained in his room, and that night an angel came to him and asked him, What have you done? He said, I handed over the fugitive to the enemy. Then the angel said, but did you know that you handed over the Messiah? How could I know? The minister replied anxiously. Then the angel said, if instead of reading your Bible, you had visited this young man just once and looked into his eyes, you would have known. Then Henry goes on to say, while versions of the story are very old, it seems the most modern of tales 
like that minister who might have recognized the Messiah if he had raised his eyes from his Bible to look into the youth's eyes. We are challenged to look into the eyes of young men and women today who are running away from the world and its hardships. Perhaps it will be enough to prevent us from handing people over to the enemy and engage them in leading into their hidden places in their woundedness to redeem them of their fears. And so this story is just, you know, the idea that we as people, we're just such, in such a hurry, right? We just want to like, like lay down biblical knowledge and, and bump people with it, and we want to be on our own way, and we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to enter in uncomfortable spaces. We don't want to waste our time. We don't want to worry about what people say about us. And because of all of that, we chalk up a Bible verse, and we say it'll be fine. You know, it's God's thing, right? And he's saying, look, just look into people's eyes, have a conversation. You know the truth in the Lord will work. And so the main question that we wrap up with here in this whole passage is not how can we hide our wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put on our woundedness in the service of others? And so just like the woman of Samaria was a wounded woman who was still wounded after, was able to share, this is what Jesus knows about me. And he steps into my wound, into my heart, and out of that is this wellspring of life that that not only affects her, but the entire village of people. And so in your woundedness, you have the ability to love others and be present with others because Jesus also was the wounded healer for us, crucified, beaten, and killed for us. He knows wounds. He knows pain. He definitely did not prioritize his personal convenience for the cross. But out of his woundedness, on the crucifixion, we become healed. So I'd ask you to just resonate on that over the next few minutes. We're going to wrap up with a time of formation. We have four things we always do. We have prayer people in the back. We'd love to pray for you about this. Uh, we have the bread and the cup, which is just a reminder of the wounds that Jesus endured for the sake of our healing and our salvation. Uh, bread and cup, there's one in the back and one in the front, and they're uh, gluten-free, and you can take that at any time. We also have giving box, or we call it the bringing box in the back, and that's just a reminder to bring before the Lord what is already his through giving. Uh, and then lastly, we just want you to reflect on this. I think if I was to sum this up, uh, we don't have story time, so we want you to spend some space in this. Is just, where is my wound? And maybe you're like, I don't even want to think about it. It'd be easier if I didn't. Where is my wound? How is, how is God trying to meet me in that? Or maybe God has met me in that, but I'm still just squirming a little bit. I'm just not letting him acknowledge it. And then, and then if you've let Jesus into your wound, how does your woundedness become a service to others? Who do you need to talk to? What story do you need to share, right? Maybe it's up here. Maybe it's in a small group of people. Maybe it's a phone call. But your woundedness is not wasted, And Jesus wants to meet you right there. And he wants to take a deviation from the normal path just to meet you where you are, look you in your eyes and say, I love you. And I am. So we'll give you time to reflect on that and then we'll close with one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.